Hey Moth family, save the date for the Moth main stage on Saturday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join us and host Jonathan Ames for an evening of stories as five storytellers take the virtual stage and share a true personal tale from their life. Stories of glory and defeat, taunting fate, laughing in the face of danger, and the moments that forever changed the course. Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtual mainstage. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jennifer Hickson. The Moth is true stories pulled from the headlines of someone's life. All these true stories are told in front of a live audience with no notes. In this hour, dreams, redemption, flamenco, boy scouts, party planning, speeding tickets, headless skeletons, a little darkness, and a lot of light. You'll see. Our first story is from Auburn Sandstrom. We discovered her at a moth story slam in Michigan. Here's Auburn Sandstrom telling her story live in Northampton, Massachusetts, where we partnered with New England Public Radio. The year was 1992, Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'm curled up in a fetal position on a filthy carpet in a very cluttered apartment, and I'm in horrible withdrawal from a drug that I've been addicted to for several years now. In my hand, I have a little dilapidated piece of paper. I've been folding it and unfolding it. There's a phone number on it. And if you've ever had an anxiety attack, that's what this felt like. I'd been having like a nonstop anxiety attack for the last five years. And I'd never been in a more dark or desperate place as that night. And I would have just gone screaming out of there. My uh, husband was out running the streets trying to get a hold of some of, that, uh, some of that stuff that we needed. And I knew if he succeeded, he was not going to share. And if I could, I would have jumped out of my own skin and run into the streets but right behind me in the room, sleeping, was my baby boy. Now, I wasn't going to get a Mother of the Year Award in 1992. Uh, in fact, at the age of 29, I was failing at a lot of things. Uh, it had started out uh, fairly auspiciously. I was uh, raised in comfort and privilege. I was that girl who had the opera lessons, who spoke fluent French, who had her expensive undergraduate college paid for. I was that person who, when my uh, checking account ran out, I would say something to my parents and $200 would magically appear. I know, when the revolution comes, kill me first, right? Uh, so I had the year abroad. I was, uh, I had a master's degree. I was, uh, you know, pedigreed, but as you get to uh, uh, your 20s, uh, someone like me, I ended up in Ann Arbor and I started noticing things like poverty and injustice and racism and it was, it was a huge revelation to me. And I came to the faulty conclusion that the thing I needed to do with my privilege and all the comfort that I'd had all my life was to destroy it, 
rip it in half, spit on it, and set it on fire. You know, every time I've made a major faulty conclusion, uh, the man comes right after that will help me live it out. And uh, this, uh, <laughs> this was no different. Uh, man, he was beautiful, 40 years old, and a radical, revolutionary, fine-ass poet from Detroit. I'm 24, he's 40, and I was smitten in love. It was so exciting who he was, how he talked, the way he looked at the world. And uh, it was beautiful for a while until he introduced me to one of his old activist friends who introduced us to the drug I was now addicted to. And so, I had tried to transform myself. I, I wanted to shed my class. I, I, if I could have, I would have shed my race. Instead of transformation, you have me in Ann Arbor in 1992 going 90 miles an hour down I-94 with my poet, with a car full of uh, alcohol, illegal drugs, paraphernalia, the baby's in a car seat covered, uh, it's probably not a regulation car seat, he's covered in candy and chocolate because you have to keep the baby entertained while you're taking care of your business, getting yourself some relief. <sighs> this particular night, it was, uh, it was bad because if we were to have been pulled over one of those many times that we were going down that highway, I was on parole, he was on probation. We would have both been locked up and our child would have been taken from us. So underneath my withdrawal and terrible anxiety was a sure knowledge that I was leading the life that was going to lead to me losing the most precious thing I'd ever had in my life. I was so desperate at that moment that I became willing to punch the numbers into the phone. And the phone number was something my mother had sent me. Now, mind you, I hadn't been speaking to my parents or anybody else for three, four, five years. But she'd managed to get this number to me in the mail, and she said, look, this is a Christian counselor, and since you can't talk to anybody else, maybe sometime you could call this person. I'm not trying to hang with any particular religion at this point, but I'm so desperate and I'm so anxious and I'm in such a desperate state. I was emaciated, covered in bruises. I punched in the numbers. I hear the phone pick up. I, I, I hear a man say hello and I say, hi, I got this number from my mother. Um, do you think you could maybe talk to me? And I heard him shuffling around in the bed, like, you know, you could, you could tell he was pulling some sheets around and, and sitting up. And I heard a, a little radio in the background, I, and he snapped it off, and he, he, he just became very present. And he said, yes, 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 what's going on? And I hadn't told anybody, including myself, the truth for a long, long time. And I told him I wasn't feeling so good and that I was scared and that things had gotten pretty bad in my marriage. And you know, before long I started telling him other truths like 
I might have a drug problem, and I really, really love my husband, and I wouldn't want you to say anything bad about him, but he has hit me a few times, and, and there was a time when he pushed my child and me out into the cold and slammed the door behind us, and then there was a time when we were going 60 miles an hour down the highway, and he tried to push us out of the moving vehicle, but I love him, and don't say anything bad about him. I started telling those truths, and this man didn't judge me. He just sat with me and was present and listened and had such a kindness and such a gentleness. Tell me more. Oh, that must hurt. Oh. And you know, I'd made that call probably two in the morning, and he stayed with me the whole night until the sun rose, and I was feeling calm. I was feeling okay. I was feeling, you know, I, I can do, I can splash my face with water today and I, I can probably do this day. <laughs> I wouldn't have cared if the guy was like a Hare Krishna or a Buddha. It didn't matter to me what his faith was. I, I was very grateful to him. And, and so I said, hey, you know, I really, really appreciate you and, and what you've done for me tonight. Aren't you supposed to be telling me to read some Bible verses or something? Because that, you know, that'd be cool. I'll do it. You know, it's all right. And uh, he laughed and he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad this was helpful to you. And, and we talked some more and, and I brought it around again. I said, no, really, you're very, very good at this. I, I, I need to tell you how grateful I am. How, how long have you been a Christian counselor? And he said, okay, Auburn, I've been trying to like avoid this subject, I, I, I need you right now not to hang up. That number you called, wrong number. <laughs> I didn't hang up on him. I never learned his name. Never talked to him again. I don't think I took any of his advice. But I need to tell you that the next day, I experienced something that I've heard called peace that passes understanding. Because I had experienced that there was random love in the universe and that some of it was unconditional, and that some of it was for me. And I can't tell you that I got my life totally together that day, but it became possible. And it also became possible for me to take that sticky chocolate-covered baby boy and raise him up into a young honor scholar athlete who graduated from Princeton University in 2013 with honors. This is what I know. In the deepest, blackest night of despair and anxiety, It only takes a pinhole of light, and all of grace can come in. Thank you.
That was Auburn Sandstrom. Auburn's done many great things with her life since that night. She's won awards for her writing, has a master's degree, and a school principal's license. She told me that telling this story healed something that 22 years of distance hadn't been able to touch. It felt good to be proud of something from such a dark period in her life. About the man on the other end of the line that night, Auburn never heard from him again, so we don't know who he was. But I hope he's listening right now. Sir, if you're listening right now, if this story sounds familiar, please get in touch with us at themoth.org. And to everyone out there who does stuff like that, picks up the phone at 2 a.m., helps strangers, is a sympathetic ear, thank you. You're the light that comes through the cracks. Our next story is by Rabbi Daniel Judson and involves the law. Not rabbinical law, but Boston traffic laws. Rabbi Judson told it at an open mic moth story slam where we partner with WGBH and WBUR. Here is Daniel Judson. I was really, really late, and I was driving like, I was kind of driving like a maniac. And uh, I, was late for, I was late for Bible study, actually, it sounds a little weird to say. Um, I'm a rabbi, and uh, I was, had been a rabbi for about three weeks. This was about 15 years ago, so I look like I'm 20 now, I look like I was 10 then. <laughs> and uh, I'd been a rabbi for about three weeks, and this was the Sabbath, but the Saturday before the most important um, holiday of the Jewish year, and I'm driving way too fast, way too, I got, police come, they pull me over, I'm about a mile from my synagogue, policeman comes, out, and I say, thinking that this might be of some help, and maybe I can slide my way out of this, I say, <clears throat> uh, I'm the rabbi of the synagogue about a mile up the road, and I'm going to Bible study. <laughs> policeman says, Looks like rabbis can speed, can't they? <laughs> License and registration, please. And I actually don't carry my wallet on Saturday. It's a long story. We can skip it. But I say, um, I don't carry my wallet. I don't know my license. Sorry about so religious. Sorry. And he says, oh, looks like rabbis can speed and think they don't have to carry wallets on Saturdays. <laughs> Goes back to his car. He does that thing that policemen do comes back, he says, sir, get out of the car. I'm going to have to impound this vehicle. I said, excuse me? He said, you have to get out of the car. I'm going to impound this vehicle. Something about I hadn't changed over plates. So I said what I think any man of the cloth would say at that particular moment. What the fuck? <laughs> and he says to me, and you're a rabbi. <laughs> so like the good cop, there's actually another guy, the good cop says, look, you pay $100 or something, pay $100 and, and we won't, you know, you can drop the car off at your synagogue. And I said, I don't have any money. He says, well, look, let's take, we'll take you to, so they take me to this, this synagogue that I'm the rabbi of and I'm, I'm in the back seat of a police car having been there for three weeks. <laughs> And someone told me later that nice Lillian Goldberg, 85 years old, who would come to my Bible study every day for 10 years, every 10 years she'd come, she looked out the window and she said, oh look, there's that nice new rabbi coming in the back of a police car. I hope it's not drugs or sex. I collect the money, I pay my car. Next day, I'm in my office, knock on the door, synagogue lawyer comes in. Fight it, Rabbi. Fight it. 
Just say you didn't know what you were doing. Say the policeman didn't know. Just fight it. They won't press charges. No, I was speeding. I really was. He walks away. Dinah Goldberg walks into my office. Rabbi, here's what I'm saying to you. You were wearing a collar this town? That wouldn't have happened. You know what I'm saying, Rabbi? I said, really? No, I was speeding. It's okay, I was speeding. It's Phone call. Father Jacobs, the Episcopal priest. Dan, I'm upset about this. This should not have happened. So really, I was speeding. So, wow. I'm on the phone three days later with my, with my mother, actually, who says, um, honey, the, the, holidays, the holidays are coming. I just want to see. I said, I just want to make sure you're going somewhere for that. I said, Mom, do you, the, I became a rabbi. Did you, you're calling me to see if I'm going to synagogue on the high holidays. I became a, no, we had this conversation. I'm going to be a rabbi. You said lawyer. I said rabbi. You said lawyer. I said rabbi. You said, what will the weekly bridge club think? I said, I could care less what the rookie bridge, excuse me, I could care less what the weekly bridge club thinks. And she said, of course, well, at least the weekly bridge club calls me every week. <laughs> Phone call, uh, call waiting. I said, Mom, hold on. Uh, Rabbi Judson, this is Sergeant Berkowitz of the Canton Police Department. I say, he says, we need to come, we need to, we need to talk to you. So I put him on call waiting and I go back to my mother and I say to her what every mother, Jewish mother wants to hear. Mom, I gotta go. It's the police. They're calling me in to talk about something. <laughs> Sergeant Berkowitz. Now, I'm imagining the lineup, the, the kind of the police roll call that morning at the Canton Police Department, which is a, kind of an Irish town. I'm imagining them running through the roll call of who's gonna call the rabbi this morning. You know, Sergeant Callahan says, I'm not doing it. O'Brien says, I'm not doing it. Berkowitz? Berkowitz, probably. Yeah, maybe Berkowitz. <laughs> So I go down to the police station. Sergeant Berkowitz is there. He says, let's get rid of this ticket. I said, no, no, I was really speeding. He says, Father Jacobs called me. This woman who's a nut called me. Some lawyer called me. Like, we're getting rid of it. Just rid of it. It's okay. It's okay. Seven years later, I'm on the same strip. I'm late again. Policeman pulls me over rolls down the window, asks me for my license and registration. I start to say I don't have it again. And he says, aren't you that rabbi? <laughs> he says, my buddy pulled you over that day. He was being a jerk. You just go ahead and have a good night. I said, really? He said, God works in strange ways. That was Rabbi Traffic Outlaw Daniel Judson. He's also a professor at Hebrew College Rabbinical School in Newton, Massachusetts. He'd like you to know that this story took place a long time ago, and these days he follows all the traffic laws. He always wears his seatbelt. And while he doesn't carry his wallet on Saturdays to remind him not to spend any money, he does carry his driver's license just in case. When we come back, Rookie Reporters, Boy Scout Camp, and a 40th birthday party. 
The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson. This next story is from Terry Figueres Negretti. She told it in Miami, where we partner with public radio station WLRN. The theme was balance. Here's Terry, live in Miami. My first real job at the Miami Herald was covering the graveyard shift on the police beat. I was this chubby, overprotected Cuban girl from Kendall. Any Cuban girls from Kendall? Yeah? All right. Who had... (laughs) Pretty much everyone. So who had, uh, you know, managed to Forrest Gump her way into this really cool job. And I spent the whole first year feeling like I was on just shaky ground. Um, So they sat me next to the two most veteran crime reporters of the newspaper. On one side was Elaine DeValle, just brash and bold, and whose default method of reporting was just like screaming into her phone in Spanish, like if she was being burned at the stake by Fidel Castro, just like passion. And then on the other side was Arnold Markowitz, Arnie, or Wits, if he really, really liked you. And he was wild with like a shock of white hair and this like white beard that he would claw in frustration if someone is being especially dumb or stupid. And I was frequently both. Um, And because Arnie was kind of hard of hearing, he had rigged up his desk phone to this bright white light, like the kind of thing a tugboat would need to navigate foggy conditions. It was like fucking ridiculous. So every time the phone would ring, the light would flash in my face and Arnie would pick up the phone and scream, Margowitz, what you got? It was like terrifying. But he was a legend, unstoppable, unscoopable. Every criminal and cop knew him and I was determined to impress him. So that first summer, Arnie gets a call, a tip, that there was a break in a cold case he had covered years ago, decades. There was a guy who had disappeared on the way to an Indian casino at the edge of the Everglades. Arnie gets a tip that they found his car at the bottom of a canal off of Chrome. So he sends me out to go to the crime scene and see if they pulled any remains from this submerged car. So I'm driving out to Homestead, like in the middle of the night, in the middle of a thunderstorm, somehow managed to talk my way into the crime scene. And I'm standing there, like ankle deep in mud, and they're winching up this old sedan, and one of the cops opens the car door, and sure enough, it's a tangle of bones and muck and weeds. Did I mention the bones? Yeah. So um, I scribble in my notebook, and I get the hell out of there, because by now it's like 10 minutes to deadline, and I have to call Arnie to file my feed. Only my phone is dead, of course. So I am driving in like a blind panic in the rain, just like completely unhinged, praying for a payphone. You guys remember payphones? Um, And then I see like in the distance a Denny's, like Valhalla in the distance, Denny's with a payphone in front of it. So like I screech up like a maniac, like jump out of the car and I run for the payphone and I notice like out of the corner of my eye, this group of potheads just kind of hanging out outside the Denny's like potheads do. But I don't even pay attention to them. I throw my coins in the phone and I call Arnie, he picks up, Markowitz, what you got? And I tell him everything, the car, the canal, the bones. Um, but because Arnie's kind of hard of hearing, I have to yell all of this at the top of my lungs. So if you were, like, happened to be one of those potheads at that Denny's, at that, you know, on that dark and stormy night, this is what you would have seen. A chubby Cuban girl from Kendall, her legs caked in mud, her eyes streaked with rain and tears and mascara, wailing into a payphone like a banshee. They found his bones, but not a skull!
years later they still talk about me, like those guys. Like, bro, remember that girl at the Denny's? Yeah, bro, she totally murdered someone, right? So, so the next day at work, I get to my desk and there's a note on my keyboard that says, just simply, Figueres, welcome to the craft, signed, Wits. And it was the best love letter a man has ever written me. That was Terry Figueres Negretti. Terry and Arnie, or Wits, as we all know him now, have both since left the Miami Herald. Arnie retired and Terry left after 15 years when she had kids, but they stay in touch on Facebook. As for the headless skeleton in that car, I'm not sure, but sounds not good. Next up, Todd Schaefer, who comes to us through our Pittsburgh Story Slam, where we partner with public radio station WESA. Here's Todd Schaefer. All right, so I did something awful to my wife on her 40th birthday. The only thing she told me for her 40th birthday was that she didn't want a party. And I decided that was a perfect time to inaugurate my party planning skills and invite 85 people to our house for a surprise birthday party. And, uh... So, you know, planning, planning, and I've never, ever planned anything like that before, anything of that scale, any party planning. And so it's really stressful when you're trying to get everything together. And I was like, at, at the end of my rope, because a surprise party is basically like a long format lie that you have to sustain up until you spring the surprise and see how it goes. And I thought I had everything under control pretty well. Like three days before the party, I come home from work, I walk in the door and I can see a tarp in the kitchen, which isn't a good thing. I walk into the kitchen, I walk into the kitchen, and the wallpaper that had been on the wall that morning was like hanging in strips and on the floor, and she said, you know, there was a, there was a piece that was loose, and I was sick of the wallpaper, and I decided to just take it down. And, and the 15-year-old neighbor's daughter is standing behind her mouth, thinking, oh my God! <laughs> like, that's gonna help. And, and just to make sure that I run upstairs and hang myself, she goes, and you know, I ordered 15 yards of mushroom manure for the landscaping, and it's gonna be here any minute, and I told him to put it in the driveway. <laughs> so, she, she said, you know, I, we're not doing anything this weekend, we can paint the kitchen. And I said, well, you know, if we're painting the kitchen this weekend, maybe we don't need the mushroom manure. How about if I try to cancel that? And of course, it's too late, so I have to run outside, I run outside, I'm still in a suit. I run outside, I'm in the lot, in the vacant lot next door with a lawnmower running over bricks and rocks trying to make a spot so at least the horse shit isn't like in the driveway where people have to walk through. And uh, come back in and she's got all the paint chips laid out on the counter. She decided she wanted to paint the kitchen orange, which normally I would oppose with, with, with every fiber of my being because orange is a safety color, it's not a kitchen color. And she's got, She's got, so she's got all these laid out there, and she, point, she points to this hideous orange, and, and I go, that's, that's great, I'm gonna go get the paint right now. <laughs> so I leave, I leave, and I'm backing out of the driveway, and I look over, and, there's, and it's literally steaming, there's this steaming mountain of horse shit that's, that's mocking me from, the, from the, the lot, saying I'm a metaphor for the next few days of your life. And that night, we're, that night, so we're, we're working on the kitchen, and, and it's, you know, 11 o'clock, and she goes, I'm going to go to bed. And I, and, and I, you know, I was totally strung out and exhausted, but I'm like, you know, I have a second win. I think I'm going to work. So I stay up all night, and I work all night, go to work the next morning, 
come home, start working in the kitchen. And, and that night, same thing. She's like, I'm going to bed. I said, you know, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm going to stay up for a little bit. And I worked the entire night. So the morning of the party, the kitchen's done. It's painted like this horse colon orange. And, and it's so... She leaves with a couple of her friends. They go to this, they go to this day spa thing. And I, t and I tell my kids, and my kids knew that she'd want a party. I tell my kids, we're having a surprise party for mommy. And my eight-year-old immediately goes, mom doesn't want a party. Why are we having a party? And, I, and I, you know, I just, I'm going to tell them the truth. I go, look, for, some, for like a nanosecond, I thought it was a good idea. And I started inviting people. And it got completely out of control. And that's how the last two world wars started. And we're just going to do it. And they're... And they're they're thinking, I can tell, they're, they're, they're thinking, mommy's going to kill daddy, mommy's going to go to jail, what are we going to do? And, and I just, I said, just sh stop crying and clean. Help me out. So, so it ends up, she, she ends up coming back, like, directly on time. It happens to be the same time. A late arriving guest is standing in the front yard holding a potted plant, like, inexplicable. It's like, like a lawn ornament. And the catering truck pulls up at the same time. And she still doesn't get that there's a surprise party going on. And I, like, like fly out the door. <laughs> the woman with the pot of plant, hey, come on in, hey, you know. And, and I walk, and, and, I, and I ask the, the, the girls, what's with that truck? Like, they're going to know. I said, I'll find out. So I go over to him, and I said, it's a fucking surprise party. That's just being surprised. Drive away. <laughs> so, which he does, and I catch up to them back at the door. We walk in, and 85 people jump out. And, you know, and scream surprise. And I could tell by the look on her face that she would have been happier if they would have, like, yelled surprise, continued past her, and, like, sporked me into little bits <laughs> and, said, and said, we're leaving now. We know you don't want us here. <laughs> and the, 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 the party actually went really well. My wife pretended to have a great time. <laughs> and everybody, everybody else did have a great time. And I really thought, I thought that, you know, that she would see how well the party was going and all her friends were there and that and, and everything would be fine. It, but she did really manage to hold a grudge to this very day. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. <laughs> but really, and really the, 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 the moral of the story is if you're, if you're gonna have a surprise party, this is really more of a public service announcement than a story. If you're gonna have a surprise party, don't do it. There's more productive things you can do with your time. You can volunteer. Help. <laughs> If friends don't let friends have surprise parties. That was Todd Schaefer. He lives in Pittsburgh with his wife, their three kids, and dogs. He writes, bikes, flips houses, and volunteers with animals. And he swears that he is retired from surprise party planning, but his wife remains suspicious. Todd's kitchen, no longer orange. Our next storyteller is my friend Ray Christian, who told his story in Asheville, North Carolina. In Asheville, we partner with WCQS. This story takes place in Virginia, circa 1971. Please be warned, this story includes an ugly racial slur. The theme of the evening was firsts. Here's Ray Christian. I was the last boy in the troop to get his uniform. I was the last boy in the troop to pay his $10 to go to the big camp jamboree. Our troop was the last one selected out of all the troops in the whole state to go, more than 200 uh, troops all together. When we got there, we were the only black troop there. Now, as soon as you get there, one of the first activities that you need to participate in is the swimming test. 
The swimming test determines what activities you can participate in, whether you can play with the boats, whether you can swim alone, go with the canoes, go on any kind of water activities at all. Every one of the boys in my troop failed the swim test. I was the last kid in the last exercise and the only black kid for the swimming test. The last test was treading water. I was treading water and I watched the scoutmaster uh, lifeguard point to the different boys and say, you can get out, you can get out, you can get out. I tried to get out. He said, no, 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 you stay. Until another scoutmaster came up and he said to him, how long has he been in that water? Then he said to me, you can get out. Well, now I got the swimmer badge. But it didn't work out, well, work with me. <laughs> but it didn't quite work out the way I thought it would because every time I would show up to get a boat, get a canoe, get in the swimming pool, I'd get yelled at, hey, stop, let me see your swimmer tag. I would show it, they would say, oh, and then I would walk away. One time I was swimming in the pool by myself in the deep end and I heard one of the scoutmaster lifeguards yell out, you, you, get out of that water, get out of that water right now. I thought there was a crocodile, a snake, <laughs> snapping turtle. And he was so frantic, he jumped in the water and he grabbed me by the arm and I said, well, it must be something dangerous because he's trying to pull me out, he's trying to save me. But I realized he wasn't trying to save me when he slapped me in my face and he said, nigga, who told you you could get in the pool? I'm 11 years old. So I get out of the pool. One of the last activities they have at the camp is the mile swim. I'm the only black boy scout out of thousands that's even eligible to try out for it, so I do. I'm the last kid assigned to the last boat, because each one of us, about 10 in a group, would have to swim beside this boat, and if at any point you could give up or anything like that, you got inside the boat. 10 boats, they all move ahead, I'm the last one we start going. You have to make three rounds around this big lake to equal up to one mile. As soon as we start on the first lap, half the boys have already given up and gotten inside the boat. On the second lap, I was being traumatized by all the boys in the boats who were yelling at me, come on man, you don't need to do this, give up, stop, come on, get out of, get out of the water, get in the boat. When we get around to the last and final lap, the third lap, I'm starting to get delirious, and I see what appears to me is a slick in the water. Kind of looks like slime and cornmeal until I swim into it, and I inadvertently take a gulp, and I recognize immediately what it is. It tastes like powdered eggs that we had been eating that morning. One of the boys further up in front of me decided he wanted to give it up. Yeah, work with me. So I'm still swimming. We're getting closer to the end. My arms start to feel like spaghetti. I almost can't move anymore, but I can look way in front of me about two football lengths and I can see the other people are starting to get out of the water. I have so little energy left and the boys are still yelling at me. Come on, man, get up. Come on, stop, get out. But I keep swimming and I'm so exhausted, I can't even keep my eyes open because I don't have that much strength less. I close my eyes. I keep on stroking, 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 and it seems like I'm not moving anywhere. Then all of a sudden, I feel like a thousand hands on me at once. I'm snatched out the water, and I see all these brown arms, and everybody's yelling and screaming, and they're tossing me up in the air, and I'm yelling, and I'm crying, and I'm so happy. I'm the only black boy scout who had ever done it. Now, 
But in the big picture of things, what I did, it's, it's not that important. It's not that significant. I wasn't the last Boy Scout to do it. I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the smartest. I wasn't the prettiest. But on that day, in that place, at that time, one little black kid was first. Ray Christian is a retired paratrooper. He lives in Boone, North Carolina with his wife, children, dogs, and chickens. To see a picture of Ray as an 11-year-old boy, the same age he was in this story, visit our website, where you can also find a link to his podcast. He drives a long way to get to the Moth Story Slam in Asheville, North Carolina each month, and it pays off. At the time of this recording, he's won something like five Story Slams in a row. Unstoppable Ray. When we come back, a story about a little girl from Louisville, Kentucky, who falls in love with flamenco dancing. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. You're listening to the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson. Our final story is from Mary Furlong Coomer. Mary tells stories at the Moth Story Slam at Headliners in Louisville, Kentucky. Here's Mary Furlong Coomer live at the Moth. I grew up thinking that a life partner and a dance partner should be the same person. Thank you, Fred and Ginger. I never had that much trouble finding anybody to marry me until I gave it up myself as something of a youthful folly. Uh, Dance partners, while not exactly plentiful, were not totally absent either. And these days, even now, if I would like to dance, I bring out my my corn pone magnolia blossom accent. Young man, I'm wondering if I could persuade you to bring some joy to my declining years (laughs) by dancing with me. Now, I'm going to talk a lot about dancing. I don't want you to think I'm really a good dancer, a great dancer, anything. I mean, I can hear the beat, usually. Um, We can see that I am not possessed of that classic dancer's body that makes us all wonder where they keep their internal organs. (laughs) I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and in my generation, gently reared young ladies uh, were treated to tap and ballet lessons by their parents. Uh, Also in that parental package was attendance at the ballet. And in our case, in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, once a year, Jose Greco came through with his flamenco company. And even then, you could see a lot of flamenco dancing on the Ed Sullivan Show. I completely fell in love with that type of dancing. Um, The castanets, the fans, the shawls, the loud clacking of the feet and everything. Of course, you couldn't study it back then, where I was from, but I felt that somehow or other, this was mine. I just wanted to do that. Um, And so when we had our dance recital, and there was a dance, um, 
in that recital, and it was given to another child uh, who got to wear the black and red costume and probably could tell her right foot from her left. Um, she was a better dancer, I, I have to say. But I was just devastated. And the fact that I was 12 years old and I'm still talking about it should... <laughs> kind of convince you that I'm serious about this whole flamenco thing. <laughs> so life happens, you know, 30 or 40 years pass, and normal things, you know, I had a wonderful child, I taught school, I had, um, you know, things just go along, and, and flamenco was on that distant shore, and every now and then you see a little something on TV or in a movie, and think, yeah, I remember how I used to feel about wanting to do that. Um, then, when I was about 65, uh, moving right along, um, <laughs> I had a really rough time. Um, I lost a little money, I think a lot of people did around that time. Um, I retired and it felt very sudden to me. Um, I met somebody who just knocked me off my perch, I have to say. And I thought, what is going on? You know, I'm like becoming an old lady and I have this huge crush on this man who's just, who seems to like me too. Oh my God, you know, I had the rest of my life figured out and this was not in it. But I didn't have to worry because, um, Nothing ever really came of it. It ended before it started. Now, of course, now I'm heartbroken, you know. I'm like, what am I going to do? Oh, no, now I, oh, dear. And so, I, you know, I was very depressed. Um, and so, you know, that kind of falling is one thing. But then I fell down the stairs, too. Uh, <laughs> messed up my shoulder. Um, I opened the freezer to get a frozen bottle of water out and it fell on my toe and I broke my toe. And over the years, you know, I'd done a little dancing, but now I was, I just hurt. My shoulder hurt, my toe hurt, my heart hurt. I just, you know, I was just really down and really sad. Um, and even though I, in my depression and my weight gain and all that, you know, I knew exercise was the answer to everything, but I also knew I wasn't going to do it because, <laughs> because I just hurt all over. You know, it was really a really difficult time. I felt really old. I felt spent. I just, it was just a really difficult time. But, you know, time passes, um, and I crawled up out of that hole somehow, uh, I bought a Fitbit. Uh, <laughs> I was always very reluctant in this area, but I just pushed myself and forced myself. Um, so then I heard about this dance uh, not too far from my house at this VFW post, and it turns out I went, and I was like the youngest person there. Uh, <laughs> It wasn't really supposed to be a senior citizen dance. It was just supposed to be a dance, and they just all got old, you know, <laughs> the ones who didn't die. And, and so they had this really big dance floor, and, you know, this guy plays it. I mean, live music, not a band, but live music. I mean, he's alive. And, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and 
I didn't really expect anybody to dance with me. And then finally, this uh, one lovely gentleman, he's very nice, he's 89. Um, they're just so cute at that age. Uh, <laughs> he started, you know, asking me to dance and criticizing my hairdo. And one night he said, you know, for a woman your age, you don't really have all that many wrinkles. <laughs> you know, just sweet. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, that sort of motivated, motivated me, and then, you know, you get a little momentum going. And one day I'm sitting in my house and I'm on Facebook, and ping, there's something on there from this girl I know. She wasn't directing it at me. She just said, well, is there anybody out there who wants to teach the senior citizen fitness class at the Y? We just can't find anybody to teach those people. I messaged her, I said, take that down right now and give me the number. <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking, why not? I had, been, I had actually attended that class a few years before, and I thought, I, I could probably maybe do that. Um, <laughs> plus, it would get my sorry self out of the house two days a week, two classes on those two days. She gave me the number, and two days later, I was hired. So she said, now, you know, we have quite a bit of training. You have to take CPR and um, those that thing I'm supposed to know the name of, you know, the fibrillator thing that's, they're hanging all over the place. I had to learn how to, <laughs> please, don't, <laughs> please, I hope everybody's fine <laughs> uh, right now. But uh, <laughs> anyway, you know, and then I drove up to Columbus, Ohio, take the silver sneakers training, and silver sneakers are very strict. You know, you're dealing with a fragile demographic here. And, you know, I have to remind them three times every class, you know, to drink water, and I have to say the chair's there if you need it, and I have to do all this stuff. So finally they let me, you know, teach. And so between the, the people on Sunday night, the dancers on Sunday night, and then my classes on Tuesday and Thursday, I mean, I'm supposed to be motivating them, but, I mean, these people show up on those, you know, rolly things and all that stuff. And, yes, they do die, but... Not in, not in class, but yet, but, um, but they, uh, you know, the thing is, it's not inactivity that's taking them down, it's something else, because they're dancing up to the end, you know, they're, they're working out up to the end, and I find this, I mean, they're in their 80s and 90s, I find this very inspiring. So one day I was walking past Flamenco Louisville. We do have one of the finest flamenco schools in that whole, that whole area. And I thought to myself, okay, I've got the money. I've got the time. I believe I have the stamina. And look, there's the opportunity. So I just went into Flamenco Louisville and I said, what's the story? They said, well, we have a beginner, beginner class. Uh, and I thought, don't you dare say it's 8 o'clock in the morning because even my love of flamenco, I don't know if I could do that. She said, it's 1 o'clock on Saturday. So I showed up at 1 o'clock on Saturday for the beginner, beginner class. That was September of 2014. I'm still in the beginner, beginner class. <laughs> um, you know, you, can, you don't get promoted until you learn a whole lot of stuff. And... Uh, <laughs> But, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm committed. 
Progress, not perfection. I put that on a shirt. Progress, not perfection. And I never got worse at anything I practiced. I didn't always get better. <laughs> but I never, I never got worse. So every Saturday, and sometimes every now and then I have a private class, paid for by the YMCA salary. <laughs> and I just go, and when I go to Spain in two months' time, I will be going as a tourist, but in my heart, I will also be going as a dancer. Thank you. That was Mary Furlong Kuma. Update on Mary's trip to Spain. She loved it. The food, the people, the scenery, the flamenco, all beautiful. And then one night in Seville, she happened to be in a little pop-up pub during this big festival that happens in April. There was a great flamenco band playing, but nobody was dancing. Finally, she inquired, isn't someone going to dance? They invited her to try. And even though she wasn't dressed for the occasion, she was wearing Crocs and an old black sweater, which is basically flamenco blasphemy, she worked up her courage and took the stage. Was she great? There's no footage, but she told me people really did go kind of crazy with clapping at the end, so I'm going to go with this. She was mind-blowingly incredible. All those years of yearning came together. A dream born, circa 1948, finally come true. To see a picture of Mary wearing some of her proper flamenco garb, visit themoth.org. I hope you do, because she's really pretty cute. That's it for the Moth Radio Hour. Thank you for tuning in, and hope you'll be back next week. Host this hour was Jennifer Hickson. Jennifer also directed the stories in the show. The rest of the Moss directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Moo Zadie. Thanks to WFPL in Louisville, Kentucky. Moth stories are true as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Recording services by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Ben Harper, Guy Klusevsik, John Zorn, Lawless Music, Stellwagen Symphonette, and Jose Greco. You can find links to all the music we use at our website. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour is produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by PRX. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.